Psst. Neha, what's the tea? You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from the high school lit class. We'll also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. Hello, hello. Welcome back. For this episode, we read Fruit of the Drunken Tree by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm going to be doing a lot of butchering of names in this episode. <laughs> I was one of those people that took French, and you were too. We both took French together. Yeah, we both took French. I have been trying to learn Spanish lately, but I don't think it will pay off in this episode. Me too. I. I downloaded Duolingo like a year ago just to learn Spanish. Not sponsored by Duolingo, but <laughs> <laughs> but we'll take the sponsorship if you want it. So, but yeah, like you said, I don't think it's going to pay off in this episode. So apologize in advance for the mispronunciation. I have a summary ready. Yes. The story revolves in the 1980s to 1990s about a seven-year-old girl named Chula and her family. They live in Bogota, Colombia during the era of Pablo Escobar. So just knowing that, there's obviously a lot of violence and tragedy surrounding their life. Their family hires a maid named Petrona, who unexpectedly becomes good friends with Chula and becomes a big part of her life. Petrona is a... This is another word I'm going to be butchering. Guerrero or gorilla. I tried to do some research. I think it's pronounced both ways. So I think just for the sake of the rest of the episode, I will say gorilla is involved in a guerra entangled family. And just for clarity, guerras are people who are engaged in warfare, but not military. They are of an independent unit. And so she kind of joins Chula's family already traumatized. Her father and eldest brothers are killed and her house is burnt down. And then Chula, who is the other main character in the book, Chula has an elder sister named Cassandra. Mm -hmm. And some other characters that we'll talk about in the book as we discuss further is Petrona's love interest, whose name is Gorion and that's his nickname but yeah I think he's just referred to Gorion for most of the book I don't want to say anything more because they will entail spoilers but that's my spoiler free summary yeah and the book talks about it goes through a lot of the violence and it's set in the 90s and so that was kind of the height of a lot of the violence and crime that happened both secondary to Pablo Escobar and unrelated to him and it also touches on class because Petrona is from slum village I think mm -hmm. is what an invasion is and Chula is clearly upper middle class or upper class yeah so what theme did you pick I picked spaces i felt like a lot of the book 
the characters were very concerned with moving from one place to another or being confined to one place and their freedom was really restricted by that. So I saw that in different ways and I kind of traced the different characters going through all of those spaces and lack of space. What theme did you pick? The theme I picked was sacrifice. Ooh. Yeah, I think I saw it at the very beginning um, in Petrona's first chapter. She talks about how she lost her father and her eldest brothers. And as the eldest in the family now, she feels the responsibility to be the breadwinner of the family. So she kind of sacrifices her previous comforts in life in order to help her family. And then throughout the book, you see different ways Chula and Patrona sacrifice things for each other and Chula's parents sacrificing things for their family. And I think overall, it's just a theme that's repeated throughout the whole book. Do you think that their mom made any big sacrifices the way that the younger characters did? I actually, as a note next to Chula's mom, I put narcissist. <laughs> so no. It's kind of true. I mean, not that that means that she didn't love her family. She wasn't a bad mom. Yeah. But you could tell that she just gave importance to things that really only benefited her sometimes. And that the father was the one, he basically he works for an oil company and he's rarely at home because of his work. So obviously that's a big sacrifice to make when you're choosing to stay away from your family for work. So I think he definitely was at least in Chula's perspective, the more loving parent. And he also sacrificed in his marriage because being away, he had to take business trips and he wasn't at home a lot of the time. And allow isn't the right word, but that kind of atmosphere lent itself to his wife. I don't know if they were even affairs, but just having these relationships and friendships with other men. Mm -hmm. It sounded like she was a big flirt before marriage, but the lack of having her partner around probably made her a little lonely and I'm sure he knew about it and that was also a sacrifice he made by working so much. Now that we're done talking about our themes, I just really want to get into Chula and Petrona's relationship throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Because That's the central theme of the story. Yes. Let's start from the beginning. So Petrona enters the Santiago family's life and Cassandra and Chula are seven and nine, I think. And so they're both at a very young age and they have this weird obsession with Petrona. Petrona's obviously been traumatized with, and so she doesn't talk much. They have this weird obsession of counting the syllables that she speaks because she doesn't speak at all. Because the book is in Chula's perspective and she's only seven, at first seems to be just like a kind of like a dumb kid thing to do but I feel like there's more meaning to it well I'll come back to what you were talking about with the relationship but she actually at the end of the book when everything has happened and they big spoiler here have moved to America and kind of escaped everything she counts things as her way of coping with she probably has PTSD or some kind of panic disorder and she goes to the library and she counts books or she counts people and it's kind of the same as what she started out doing and so you wonder if she maybe had that kind of predisposition to begin with and then with her relationship with Petrona 
I feel like maybe we should give some context, at least from my perspective. It's probably different in Colombia or how the author was writing it. But in countries that are quote-unquote third world, I think it's fairly common for a lower class of people than in the United States to have help at home. So it's very common for like middle class, upper middle class, upper class, all to have maids, cooks, drivers help around the house. Mm -hmm. And I think that is part of the class discrepancy because Shula and her sister Cassandra are also enamored by a rich woman who lives at the end of the street. That woman is probably upper class in comparison to their family. But I think also it's fairly common for that help and their families to be somewhat integrated into the family. Yeah. I know a lot of people tend to pay for their maid and cook's children's education and help out with loans if they need something like that. And then also when kids are of a similar age, especially under, like, in single digits, they often play together. So I didn't find that part strange, but I did find all the rest of it strange. Mm-hmm. How she was so fascinated by her when she came to the house and how they thought there was a strange aura around her i don't know what i made of it do you have an explanation well i don't think i have an explanation but i try and look at it in the point of view of maybe how when i was a kid so i grew up with an older sister but i had cousins that were older than me that were boys and i think because i wasn't used to having an older brother that I would hang out with them more and be intrigued by what they were doing more and just was more interested in their life than maybe a normal younger sister was because it was all new to me. Katrona was at an age, I think she was 13 when she first joined the Santiago's family. Chula was like, oh, she's a teenager. Oh, she talks to boys. And it was all just new to her. So I think the obsession seemed maybe somewhat normal in the beginning but I think it grew into something I don't know I want to say wholesome but at the same time it wasn't wholesome because yeah I mean I guess we can talk about another big spoiler but Petrona eventually betrays the Santiago's family well I guess she doesn't betray she intends to betray but then she changes her mind but she about does it. because when she when they see her in that coffee shop she keeps them there while Gorion goes and gets a driver or cab and she doesn't let them leave and she's kind of instrumental to them being kidnapped where she could have turned around and told them to run Mm -hmm. and obviously she's in an impossible position and later she regrets doing that and she ends up saving her but she does betray them initially and to me it seemed like the relationship was more driven by Chula there's at some point she I don't know how it happens but she gets close to Petrona like she will sneak into her room they'll watch tv together and I don't know how it evolves I guess it kind of makes sense from what you were saying is she's in this age where you would really look up to somebody who's a couple years older and Petrona probably needed some comfort mm-hmm. and it's a little bit easier to get that from a child than from your employer who's an adult think that's a difficult class and employment barrier but with a younger child it's a lot easier i think also she found comfort in patrona because she didn't chula didn't fully understand that it was patrona's job to caretake them mm-hmm. versus like her actual older sister cassandra didn't have an obligation to take care of her in any way and so 
Chula found comfort in her, which makes the relationship make more sense. But I think after reading the book, I realized that Chula's age during this time is a really important factor to how things turned Mm -hmm. out. She was young enough that she was still innocent and not fully understood the things around her, but she was old enough to be self-aware of her own actions. So if the same thing had happened when Chula was younger or older, things wouldn't have played out the same way that they did. Yeah, that's a good point. And I noticed also that the author did a good job of getting into the mind of a nine-year-old. I think there were a lot of parts where it shows that she's a little imaginative. They treat a lot of the violence that happens around them in a almost playful manner, the way that a child would if a lot of things were happening around them that they didn't fully understand, but that kind of seeped into their consciousness. And a lot of the traumatic events, the way they're told from Chula's perspective, are very choppy. Yeah, I actually really like the way that they describe things in her perspective because the traumatic events that happened to her when she was a child seemed dramatized mm-hmm. and some other traumatic events seemed not played out enough. And I think that's like very true to how things would be. Like visually seeing a bombing on TV obviously is going to traumatize a child. But at the same time, there's a literal war happening at their doorstep, but that didn't stop them from playing head and seek and playing all these games. And I think I like the way that she wrote that out because it seemed very genuine. And I think it is genuine because the story is actually based off personal events that happened to the author. And so a lot of these things that happened in the book actually happened to her and she just wrote things the way that she remembered them. And she doesn't know if it's true or not, because obviously a child's memory isn't necessarily reliable. The bombing that happened with the girl's leg that got left, or her shoe, that was also a real event that she remembers from her childhood. And she, I don't think the leg was something that happened in Mm -hmm. real life, but she kind of expanded on a lot of things she remembered. And even the character Petrona is based off of a real person. So it makes me curious to read her memoir she's this was her only fiction book or her first fiction book that she's written her other book is a memoir i think it's called the man who moved clouds but i think the other thing about this book is that the backdrop and the context that it's set in is as much a story as chula and petrona like it wouldn't exist without that so i did a little bit of research to understand what was going on at the time and i think to an average American, they may know that there was a lot of violence in Colombia. And I think Narcos has popularized the drug cartels, Pablo Escobar. But basically, starting in the 80s, drug trafficking became a huge problem in Colombia. And the powerful drug cartels had a huge amount of influence over the country's political landscape and economy. And it got more and more escalated. A couple of guerrilla groups grew to power also. And they stormed the Palace of Justice. There was a siege that left over 100 people dead. And there was a lot of criticism of the government being unable to control this kind of political violence. There were some reforms that were implemented. They didn't really work. Finally, in 93, Pablo Escobar was killed by Colombian security forces. Unfortunately, that wasn't the end of the violence. There was still a lot of Marxist leftist guerrilla groups. One of them is mentioned in the book, the FARC. And 
and they continued until the early 2000s until finally, very recently, 2016, a peace agreement was signed between the colonial government and the FARC, which ended that armed conflict that had gone on for over 50 years. Obviously, it hasn't fixed everything, but it just gives a little bit of a glimpse into how bad the violence and all of these events were. And I think at the end of the book, the author talks about how these kidnappings and traumatic events were so common that everybody knew someone who had been kidnapped. And she and her sister were almost kidnapped. Her father was kidnapped, but luckily got released because the person in charge of that guerrilla group was apparently a school friend or someone he knew from his childhood. So it's really kind of a different landscape than something we would be used to here. The only reason why I have any prior knowledge to any of this information is because of Marcos. Mm. Have you seen that show, by no, the way? I haven't. It's so I good. To. Like Pedro Pascal is like, crazy trending right now because of last of us and is he in narcos yeah he's like one uh, in season two he becomes oh. one of the main characters okay every time i see the name pedro pascal i think of pablo escobar yeah and i didn't know why <laughs> yeah. and i'm like okay that's probably why i connected them somehow in my mind <laughs> so throughout the book pablo escobar just seems like the monster underneath chula's bed mm-hmm. chula never met this man but she would have constant nightmares about him and he was always on chula's mind as something that was bad and the book doesn't really give that much information about who pablo escobar really is i wanted to similarly do a who is pablo escobar segment of this episode i'll make it quick the 1970s colombia became a prime smuggling ground for marijuana but because of colombia's geographical location it's situated at the tip of south america and was between two of the cocaine epicenters which were Peru and Bolivia at the time. It quickly became the biggest market for cocaine to the United States. Pablo Escobar, who was previously involved in crime organization, took power over a previously murdered drug trafficker in 1975. And under Pablo's leadership, large amounts of cocaine were purchased and transported to the U.S. This was his first like big thing that he did that made him popular because of this the median i don't know how to pronounce that correctly that's the main cartel group that was formed because of pablo escobar as his fame and fortune grew he controlled over 80 percent of the cocaine distribution in the united states and people started to weirdly worship him and i think it's because he became a sort of robin hood character where he was doing these bad things for money and then would use that money to help people that were less fortunate. And he helped build cities. And he became a, and I think they did mention this a couple of times in the book, but he became a godlike figure. They even talk about the Robin Hood kind of complex in the book where they say something like Petrona would be safe because she's the kind of person who would benefit from him mm-hmm. or their group of people would worship him because he would help them out. Yeah. Then Pablo Escobar decided that because he considered himself to already be a big leader in Colombia, he really wanted to get into politics. When he realized he had no shot at becoming the Colombian president because of obvious reasons, he's a drug lord, he started a terror campaign. 
and he was responsible for killing thousands of people, including three Colombian presidential candidates, police officers, judges, and just ordinary civilians. He started bombing airplanes and trucks as assassinations to kill people of importance and power, and didn't really care about the repercussions of also killing innocent people along with that. One of those presidential murders was talked about in length in the book. And uh, Chua, Cassandra, and her mom are actually physically present when this assassination occurred, which also affected Chua greatly. So after he murdered Galan, he was imprisoned. But he was imprisoned in what they called Hotel Escobar or La Cathedral. <laughs> Is all this in the show? Yeah. This prison had a casino, a spa. A nightclub, a football field, a casino, ja- yeah, a jacuzzi, <laughs> a waterfall, and all of the guards were handpicked by Pablo Escobar. So they were all essentially like just having a party all the time. The authorities realized this and tried to move him to a more standard holding facility, which was when he escaped prison, which they also talk about in the book. But this didn't last long. He was on the run for only 16 months until he was shot and killed. And that's the end of Pablo Escobar. I think we talked about this in the last episode for The Murmur of Bees, where in the backdrop of the story happening, there was the Spanish flu and the Mexican Revolution. It wasn't talked about enough, but I think this book did a really good job of having it be in the background, but still giving us the information that we would want as a listener, reader, viewer. Yeah, I, I'm glad we're doing this season as books from different countries, because I think I may not have picked up this book otherwise. And I just wouldn't have learned about a lot of this without the book's context, which is one of the things I really love about historical fiction is that you get to learn about things in an interesting way and how it impacts individual people. I actually like this book more than I thought it was going to. Me too. I think my one issue with the book was the title and the concept of the tree. I just didn't understand what it had to do with anything. Obviously, it symbolizes something, but I wasn't sure what it symbolized. They only talked yeah. about the fruit of the drunken tree like maybe a couple times. Yeah, I. it felt to me like she wrote the whole book and then decided she wanted this to be the title and then went back and wrote in a couple mentions of the tree. I didn't feel like it weaved through the story in a way that made sense for the story and just having read other books that have something a symbol like this or a recurring theme it's a lot more ingrained in the story i kind of wonder it's just like you were saying would it have made more sense to me if i'd grown up knowing the mythology of the plant like is that very present in the culture i'm not sure i looked it up a little bit it's commonly known as angel's trumpet tree it is toxic but poisoning is rare because it has an unpleasant taste usually what causes the poisoning is when tea is made from the seeds. It contains a lot of psychoactive substances. So it's like a hallucinogen? Kind of. It has scopolamine and atropine, which are both anticholinergic substances. There's cholinergic neurons all over your body that mediate, in a very simplistic explanation, the opposite of the fight or flight response. Actually, scopolamine and atropine commonly are used as anti-nausea medication because of their effects on the gut and the brain. 
there's only one part in the book where Petrona like eats some of the seeds or she inhales too much of its scent and she has a little bit of a fit that Chula watches, but I have no idea what the significance of that was. Yeah, obviously Petrona getting partly poisoned by this tree meant something, but I didn't really understand why. I didn't understand. She didn't have any reason for doing it if she did it on purpose. And even if she did do it on accident, it just didn't make sense to me. And it didn't even fit with the rest of Petrona's character mm-hmm. that we hear, like, learn about in the other parts of the book. When I tried to think of what the drunken tree symbolized in the book, I thought that maybe it was just a direct relation to drug trafficking that was just surrounding them. And maybe that's mm-hmm. too literal of a translation, but honestly, I couldn't think of what else it could symbolize. Yeah, I think that makes the most sense to me, it being a literal representation of the danger in their lives. I think the presence of this tree is maybe why the book has been called magical realism. Like I saw in some descriptions that it was compared to the writing of Isabel Allende and Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Mm -hmm. which I think was a little bit quickly. Me too. Yeah, I didn't find any similarity in the writing style or the characterization. The only similarity is that they are all South American authors. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about magic realism because I think it came up a little bit with the last book too, in The Murmur of Bees. I I did notice some similarities with that book too because we had talked about the indigenous people versus kind of the colonial conqueror. And there's a line in this book in Fruit of the Drunken Tree, um, they're talking about people in their neighborhood. And it's when they're selling all their possessions to go to America. Or I should say the United States is already in America. It says, They knew Mama had grown up in an invasion and that we had Indian blood. And they had always suspected we didn't belong in that nice neighborhood with them. And that was where I saw this concept of spaces coming up. Like, who has a right to inhabit certain spaces and who dictates whether that is okay or not. That was kind of something that came up in the Murmur of Bees also. But with magic realism, I wanted to go back into how it emerged and whether the concept is unique to Latin American authors. Actually, since you mentioned Narcos, even the concept of magical realism is so widespread that the title starts with explaining magical realism. It has these words. It says, Magical realism is defined as what happens when a highly detailed, realistic setting is invaded by something too strange to believe. There is a reason magical realism was born in Colombia. Oh, I didn't know that it was a Colombian-based style. It's not. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) They just, like, it's been blown out of proportion into this kind of, like, vague, ethereal concept. And they just use that as an introduction to Narcos because they wanted to create that setting, I guess. But the words they use to describe it are so vague. Like, that could apply to fantasy. It could apply to surrealism, science fiction, like, so many different settings that it doesn't really mean anything but magical realism actually was first described by a german philosopher when he was talking about different kinds of prophets an idealist and a realist and the word he uses is similar to magician so it's magical realism magical idealist and then it appears again almost 150 years later in 1925 
when another German used to describe a specific style of painting that returned to realism from kind of the Impressionist and Modernist movements. Here, it was used sporadically by Latin American thinkers, and then it really got popularized in 1955 in an essay called Magic Realism in Spanish-American Fiction by Puerto Rican critic Angel Flores, and he set out in that essay to establish a quote-unquote differential quality of Latin American fiction, that he really wanted to set aside Latin American fiction from the rest of the literary landscape because he felt that it was bleak and didn't have any major names the way that other countries or cultures have big names in fiction. And there's a really good essay that I found called What We Talk About When We Talk About Magical Realism, and it's by Fernando Sergotti, an Argentinian writer which is where I got a lot of the information. But he says it's just like the way that people use magical realism now kind of pigeonholes Latin American authors into just one category. It inflates the fantastic and political references and cultural references into one term. Mm-hmm. I can see what he means in this essay because I don't think it's correct to call this book magical realism. Yeah, There's some some opinion that magical realism inherently includes the context of the political landscape in Latin America throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. But more broadly used, I think I can think of non-Latin American books that fall under that category that aren't called that. But also, I I can't think of any books by white Western authors that are called magical realism. Yeah, as you were saying all this, I was trying to think of a, a Western novel mm-hmm. that uses magic realism as a genre and i couldn't think of any most books that i have read and we've done a lot of magic realism on season one and now season two all of them were by authors not from the not american yeah i think that's interesting i never really thought about it and we've done so many books on magic realism at this point i'm I'm surprised we got this far without actually doing a deep dive i know and we even talked about with the night watchman how louise erdrich kind of pushes back on the label of magic realism that she's received and i I kind of like that she does that because it's not that anything in her books are so fantastical or out of this world. She's just, you know, like I think Neil Gaiman, for example, uses a lot of elements that if he were a Latino man, maybe would be called magical realism. Yeah. Well, that was an interesting deep dive. I know you touched on it while we were just talking about the class difference between Chula and Petrona. And so as we're talking about Chula and Petrona's relationship, I think, like you said, it's very much driven by Chula because Petrona does have a sense of resentment towards the Santiago's family. One thing that happens in the book is through fear, Cassandra and Chula pack an escape bag every week Mm. because they're afraid that they're going to be run out of their home. And every week they throw away food and replace it with new food. Patrona seeing this and growing up in a place where food is not as easily come by. She doesn't really describe any negative feelings towards them, but I guess you can feel the indifference that she has towards the children, which may maybe is why she doesn't necessarily say no to the idea of kidnapping them for money. Obviously, her love for them 
comes in between and she prevents the kidnapping from going through. But what did you think about the betrayal? I think now that you're saying it, I can see why she was so conflicted, not just because of her situation, but also with her alliance. I think she was in a really difficult position where her boyfriend was kind of threatening and violent and she knew something bad would happen to her or her family if she maybe didn't comply with them. But even in an internal way, she likes the girls as children, as individuals, and I think she's probably neutral or fine with their mom. But at the same time, she probably resents who they represent and their position. And I think that probably led her to a lot of inaction or going back and forth with those behaviors where she helped out however much she was involved in helping out she did help out and then later she decides that she needs to save them i think she has enough time to think and realize what it is she's getting into i i don't blame her yeah me too and i think that's what this book did that murmur of beasts didn't so we talked a lot about how they villainized anselmo in murmur of bees but he did have reasons that maybe were justified in his actions. Maybe not murder, but just his resentment and feeling for revenge. And he had his own story and he wasn't given the space or time to tell that story. This book is basically giving us that. Yeah. Because it's they're both going through the same thing. They're both trying to survive political violence, corruption, and just basically national unrest. But because of their class, they're given different challenges and tools on how to survive that. Mm -hmm. And I think the author did a really good job of describing those differences. Yeah, you're right. This book does a good job of what we missed out in the last book. Like when we were reading The Murmur of Bees, everybody who reads that book will come away hating Anselmo. He is just portrayed as a villain. There's no sympathetic viewpoint that he's given. But with this book, I think it would be really hard to hate Petrona. And we even get the introspection from Chula when she's a little bit older that Petrona made a lot more selfless of a sacrifice than Chula would. She thinks about how she would have put herself first and maybe not gone out of her way. And she recognizes that what Petrona did was very brave and that she maybe wouldn't have behaved the same way in the same situation. Wow. Do you... This is the not-so-fun part of the book. From the time that Petrona saves Chula to the end of the book, it's like just tragedy after tragedy. Papa, Chula's dad, gets kidnapped. They're basically run out of their home. They become refugees, and they try to move to the United States. Being an immigrant is not easy in a hundred different ways. The most disgusting part of all of this is what happens to Petrona. I don't even want to say it. I think also at this point we need to put in a trigger warning for sexual violence. We find out before they come out and say it that Petrona was raped by, it's unclear who, whether they were strangers or guerrilla members or associated with her boyfriend, but that leads to her completely losing herself. Like She doesn't remember who she is. Her life becomes something that the old Petrona maybe wouldn't have put up with. She ends up with her boyfriend, Gorion, who put her in this whole situation in some ways. And she keeps the baby and she lives a quote-unquote happier life, but she's empty. Yeah, and they do explain that after she gets back with Gorion and she's living her life, that she actually remembers. Because yeah. they say that she has 
amnesia after she's raped. A couple months later, she finds out she's pregnant. She just still doesn't remember anything, but she has small glimpses of where she used to live. But I'm guessing years go by and she actually remembers everything again, but she doesn't tell anyone because the pain is so strong and it, there's, she finds some comfort in maybe just pretending like none of it happened. It's just so sad because granted, this happened because she agreed to portraying the Santiago's. But when she went back on that decision, these are the consequences that she had for saving Chula and Cassandra. The sad part is, is that Cassandra and Mama will never know mm -hmm. what Patrona did to save their family. Chula, in some ways, has an idea of maybe what Patrona went through because they keep in touch by like, a letter or two that they exchange in the beginning of the book and at the end of the book but yeah i mean it's just like an act of selflessness that nobody can ever relate mm -hmm. to i think and it feels so sad because you think that maybe their mom could have taken patrona with them when they escaped to the united states but you also can't expect that like when that something like that happens you just get out you can't i wouldn't expect a mother of two girls to turn around and help the maid who questionably put them in harm's way. The end of the book was just heartbreaking. It was so hard. Yeah, the last couple of chapters were hard to read and the tone was so different because also I think mm -hmm. she's many years older. A lot of the trauma is manifesting physically for her and mentally, whereas a child, maybe it's not fully processed and can be suppressed. Yeah, and then the dad comes back and there's this a couple of chapters of Chula being in denial that the person that came back is her father. She's just convinced herself that the person that came back is an imposter mm -hmm. because he's different. I mean, obviously he's different. He's been in prison for six years and looks different and acts different. Those chapters were so sad. Mm -hmm. What do you think Chula wrote in the letter that she sent to Paterna? Because we don't get to see it. I don't know. I think what this book was lacking was into the personalities of the main characters. We know what happens to them. We know the trauma that they went through. I had a hard time predicting their actions based off what we've learned about them yeah. in the book. So that's why I don't think I can answer that question because I don't, I feel like I didn't end the book knowing enough about Chula to understand what she may have written. Yeah. I think part of that is the age and the way the characters exist in this world because Chula is really young and doesn't have a fully developed personality yet. And so a lot of what she does is very reactionary to external things. And then the way the book is written, we get much fewer Patrona chapters and they are purposefully, you feel like you're being held at a distance and you're not getting all of her inner thoughts. And the book also goes in full circle. Patrona enters Santiago's life kind of being a mute because of the trauma that she's been through. And when Chula and her family immigrate to the United States, I think they go to Los Angeles. Yeah right? The same thing happens to Chula. Mm -hmm. Her trauma response is very similar to what Patrona's trauma response was. And I wonder if she learned that from her or if it was just a natural response or if that's common in children. It did feel like there wasn't a sense of closure. I think that was intentional. Like I think that mm -hmm. is natural based on how traumatized the whole family was. Do you have a passage? Yes, I do. So this is somewhere in the middle of the book. 
when Petrona goes on vacation and she doesn't come back for some time and Chula's worried about her. The weight of Mama's hand on my chest was comforting. Her green veins pulsed under the light of the moon. I felt my mind growing dizzy and heavy. I didn't want her to be dead. All it took was a little bad luck. Mama's veins and their outlines rose in the air and floated there like green branches, and then turned into the waves of a green sea where a lost ship sat bobbing and where sharks shot up on all sides, their white bellies glistening in the sun. They stayed suspended in the air, their gray tails dripping seawater. Their lips curved down in sadness and parted to mutter incomprehensible things. So pretty. Yeah, there are some really beautiful passages in here. It shows that Chula is a very imaginative child. And Mm -hmm. it kind of gets squashed because of everything that she lives through. Mm -hmm. Well, is it time to filter the chai? Yes, let's do it. Like I said, I like this book a lot more than I thought I was going to. I didn't really have expectations going into it. So I gave it an 8 out of 10. Just comparing it to The Murmur of Bees because that's the last one we did. The Murmur of Bees, the writing was more consistently lyrical. This one was a little more matter-of-fact and simplistic. But as we just saw, there were a lot of really beautiful descriptive imagery. And I just think it did a really good job of portraying what was going on in this family's life in a very compelling way. I also gave it an 8 on 10. I think I gave Murmur of Bees also an 8 on 10. Even though I like this book more, I think I was just disappointed by the fruit of the drunken Mm -hmm. tree symbolism and just wanted more from the Petrona and Chula relationship that I was like, this book had potential to be like a really, really good book. The title felt a little misleading. And I think a lot of books, mm-hmm. you know, with Bookstagram and TikTok and YouTube, a lot of book covers now are just visually very beautiful. I think we've gone away from like mm-hmm. a lot of the older Penguin classics are kind of just an old painting with the title and people are very into visually appealing book covers. Don't judge a book by its cover, Shetty. I know. I'm sorry. It's my worst <laughs> book vice. I do it all the time (laughs) do you think it stands the test of time Uh, you answer first okay i think yes one of the ways that we and i have to make a distinction when i say that one of the things that we've talked about in what makes classic or what makes a book timeless is something that we would pass on to our children or we would want to pass on to the next generation I haven't read other books with this setting, but I do think it does a really good job portraying that climate. The distinction I make is my other criteria for calling something a classic is something that is generative. And I don't know how generative this book is. I don't think there are ideas that like just run off the page that need to be made into a movie or a sequel or another book or new ideas and I don't know beyond this discussion how much repetitive reiterations there can be of the book. So yes to it should be read in 50 years. Not sure if it gets classic stuff. I put yes question mark and then I put (laughs) wait no. That's literally (laughs) what I wrote down. (laughs) So I think I agree. I think the reason why I was so hesitant was 
only because of the Chula Patrona relationship. Mm -hmm. I just don't know if that was strong enough for me to recommend this book as a classic. I think it's a good book. It's, I liked it. It was I, me saying being confused about answering this does not mean that I didn't like this book. Right. And not every book has to be a classic. Yeah. I can't choose because there are elements of it that I think 100% yes. But there's also elements of it that were maybe no. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is probably true for both of us is that I have very high expectations on a character portrayal and character development front that weren't quite met in this book. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to shelf discovery. I thought I was only going to have one, but I actually have two. Oh, okay. And the first is Bel Canto by Anne Patchett. I read this book a really long time ago, but I remember liking the writing style. What I remember about it is that it's set in this fancy party or performance opera and all of a sudden someone comes in with a gun and holds the entire theater hostage oh shit the reason i thought about the book is because i had been thinking of fruit of the drunken tree through the theme of spaces and that whole book they're confined to this one space and it's very similar in that there is a threat of violence um i think bel canto is a little bit more of a positive spin I think it's something that a young child could read. And I actually didn't realize until I went back to look at it now, it's set in Argentina. So it's also set in oh. South America. And I think it just handles a difficult topic with a lot of grace. Do you want to do yours and then I'll do my other one? Sure. So my shelf discovery is Stay With Me by Ayobami Adibeo, I think is how you say her name. This is a really, really sad book. And the only reason why I thought of it is because, similarly, there's a lot of political unrest happening in Nigeria at that time. And it's just kind of in the backdrop of this relationship story that happens. I remember reading it and finishing it and being like, I'm never reading this book again because it's that like, <laughs> uncomfortable. But sometimes I think those uncomfortable books you need to read because just because something is sad, and traumatic doesn't mean that it's not important. Yeah, I will have to pick that up at a later time because I don't think I can do back-to-back -back trauma. My second book is Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close by Jonathan Safran Foer. It is told from the perspective of a nine-year-old boy who lost his father in the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. And it follows his journey in the aftermath to kind of cope with that grief. And he discovers some objects of his father's and goes on this kind of emotional journey. But the reason I picked it is because it's told from the perspective of a nine-year-old boy. And I think it does a really good job of showing how a nine-year-old would respond to that kind of loss. Do you want to talk about what we're going to be discussing on the next episode yeah so we are leaving the americas we are heading to sweden the book we're reading is called stolen it's by Anne helen listadius this book is set in sweden following a young indigenous woman as she struggles to defend her family's reindeer herd and culture amidst xenophobia climate change and hunting culture 
some of the descriptions I've seen compares her writing to Louise Erdrich, which makes me excited because I loved Louise Erdrich's writing. But I'm also now wary because Fruit of the Drunken Tree had nothing to do with Isabel Allende. So, or Gabriela Garcia Marquez. Yep. So we'll see. But I'm still excited to read it. Speaking of aesthetic and pretty book covers, the cover of the physical paperback is so pretty. And the binding is like this kind of Christmassy, but indigenous and like traditional quilt type pattern. Mm -hmm. I have been seeing this book literally everywhere the past month. It's definitely trending right now. So hopefully it lives up to the hype. And yeah, I'm excited. Thanks for listening to The Novelty. We are your hosts, Neha and Shruti, and our music is created by Apoorva Koti. We love to hear from you, so send us book recommendations, episode commentary, or even critical feedback. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.